If you're in the market for a super addictive puzzle game, you have to check out Mini Motorways on Apple Arcade. It's a city planning strategy puzzler with an incredibly satisfying gameplay loop. Enjoy unlimited access to over 200 incredibly fun games with no ads and no in-app purchases. From puzzle and adventure games to sports, racing and multiplayer action games, everyone can count on finding something to love. Head to sifter.com.au slash arcade to start your free trial of Apple Arcade today. That's sifter.com.au slash arcade for a free one-month trial of Apple Arcade, and you'll be supporting independent video games journalism. New subscribers only, $9.99 a month after free trial. Plan automatically renews after trial until cancelled. Pixel Sift is proudly supported by Murdoch University School of Arts. Now, if you are looking for a creative degree, they may be able to help you out. Look, if you're keen to learn more uh, and think about how you can improve your creative game, head to murdoch.edu.au forward slash arts to find out exactly what they've got on offer. That's murdoch.edu.au forward slash arts, or you can search Murdoch University for more information. Murdoch University School of Arts, proudly supporting Pixel Sift. Hello and welcome to episode 153 of Pixel Sift. It's a show developed to the how, the why, the making of of games in Australia and around the world. My name is Gianni Di Giovanni. I'm your host for the for this evening and my guest tonight is Paul Capetko who is from Cranky Watermelon. A good afternoon, good evening, Paul. Thank you for joining us. Looking forward to having hey. a chat to you all about your game. Thanks for having me on the show. We're going to be talking about Boomerang Foo. It is a local multiplayer a brawler uh, where you take on uh, the role of a cute or deadly uh, piece of food and you battle it out in an arena. It's a lot of fun and we can't wait uh, to get in and learn a little bit more about how it all works. Uh, Let's jump in, shall we? Australia's best video game podcast. Subscribe to Pixel Sift on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and wherever podcasts are found. Okay, so we're talking about Boomerang Foo. Uh, It's made by uh, Cranky Watermelon. Now, Paul, can you tell us, if people have never come across Boomerang Foo, how would you describe this game? What's the best sort of touchstone for them to understand uh, how it is and how it plays? Our, uh, our way of describing it is that it's a uh, frantic physics party game where you slice and dice your friends with boomerangs. So we have this little selection of cute food characters. You choose your favourite food and then you get zapped into a kind of zen garden tranquil arena where you do brutal combat using boomerangs. The, the unique feel of our game, I think, revolves around the fact that every character just starts with one boomerang and you only have one hit point. So it's really fast and really deadly. And you can use your boomerang as a melee weapon, like it's a sword. You can throw the boomerang to kill other people. You can deflect incoming throws with it. Basically, you can u- do a lot with this weapon. But once you've thrown your boomerang, It's a risky move because you might lose it and now you're completely unarmed. So sometimes boomerangs come back, sometimes they don't. You have to go chase after them. 
you basically have to keep your eye on a lot of moving pieces all at once in this frantic game. It's definitely frantic. It's definitely fun. It's an extremely cute-looking game. The aesthetics look uh, really enjoyable. Um, they're just really colourful. Uh, there's just, just so much colour. Can you tell me about how that aesthetic kind of came about? What was the development process for that? Oh, of course. Um, we did it, and I wouldn't necessarily advocate that everyone do it this way, but I greyboxed the entire game, um, which often people describe as programmer art. Um, I just made everything out of squares. The boomerangs were squares, the characters were squares, everything was just little squares running around. And I prototyped all the mechanics that way. And it was kind of from that that we then developed the art style. In fact, Julian Wilton, who's our art director, he played the game when I was playtesting it at Beer and Pixels, which is a little Sydney meetup we have one night. Um, and he played it and thought, oh, yeah, I could do so much with this. I really just want to get my hands on it and give this a proper art pass. Um, and you can definitely and really see great. that style, can't you? Because he's brought his uh, characteristic uh, character design to the to the world of Boomerang Fu. Yeah, definitely. And I really like how oddball his approach is. Often when we were working together, he would present me with like a watermelon that looks really, I don't know, like cute, but also quite weird. And so I was often pushing him back to make it, oh, could we just be a little cuter and less strange, please? <laughs> um, but yeah, I really love his stuff. And ultimately the art style was born from the gameplay. Um, we needed to have characters on screen because the game supports up to six players. And so with six people running around and throwing their boomerangs, it happens all very quickly. And you need to be able to instantly identify which character you are on screen. So the foods are a really good solution to this problem for us because, one, they have a unique silhouette, so each of them has a really immediately identifiable and recognisable shape. Two, they have a unique colour, so you know, oh, I'm the carrot, I'm the orange one, or I'm the milk, I'm the blue milk carton. Um, and three, because the game is quite violent, there's a lot of death in it, I think the fact that we've personified this in food really softens the violence. It makes it more funny. So if you're the avocado and you get killed by a boomerang, there's a degree of frustration about losing, but it actually is quite satisfying, I think, in boomerang foo because you get to see the little avocado stone fall out and then roll away along the ground and splash into a lake. Yeah, it's definitely got a, a really... Uh, well, I remember I was playing uh, with Mitch just a moment ago and uh, as a coffee cup, uh, which he has got, <laughs> got like this water, liquid sloshing around in it, and then as soon as you get taken out by one of those... Uh, uh, boomerangs or someone comes up and slices you directly you just spill out the coffee all on the ground and that was like almost like a shocking experience but also very funny at the same time um, how do you balance that because it looks like a game that would be really appropriate for a lot of different ages uh, how do you make it because so that it doesn't isn't too violent or isn't too full-on i think ultimately the fact that the deaths of the food are recognizably things that happen to food like a lot of, like, the eggplant gets sliced in half and you can see the insides of the eggplant as it gets uh, cut. I think, in many ways, the fact that we can go back to that really makes it more friendly for all ages. I initially hadn't even thought of it being particularly appropriate for children as a game, but the more we've playtested it, the more I've seen kids really get into it. I think because it does have this cartoonish approach and cutesiness to the violence, everything seems quite... Uh, although it's a brutal game, it's also quite gentle. And the way we've designed it is to make it as easy as possible to pick up. I really wanted to make it accessible for people who, you know, maybe they don't play that many computer games, but they're at a party and someone says, hey, 
come and play Boomerang Foo on the couch and they nervously pick up the controller, not really knowing how to use it. Um, and we've tried to make the controls as simple as possible. So there's only one stick and three buttons to do all of the actions in the game. So there's actually a lot of depth to it if you go that far and learn all of the complex advanced techniques. But I think the very basics, making them easy to learn, therefore makes it more approachable for children. Can you tell us as well, like when you were sort of prototyping it out and putting it in front of people to first play, you said it was very uh, grey boxed at the beginning, it was just very basic and then it was built up on top of that. How long did it take to go from that stage until the point uh, where you were able to release it this month? Uh, It's been kind of an embarrassingly long time. I think it's been almost five years now, um, which is very much because Boomerang Foo started as a side project for me. It was a little prototype I made in between other jobs uh, that I was on. And so occasionally I'd have to stop development on it for a while while I worked full time on a different game. Um, And then I'd pick it back up again. So I think we actually, well, I spent about two years developing it solo, just making that grey box prototype. Um, and then the last three years has been where we really pushed the art hard. But everyone who's working on the game also has other jobs. So they're working kind of nights and weekends or when they can squeeze it into their busy lifestyles. It's great to see it finally come together, given all those constraints. Yeah, I can imagine. And this is, I guess, the the modern way of developing games. People often have to have their, their day job uh, and then build this game out uh, in, in their spare time and, and part of that. Um, can you tell me, what did you do when you were designing this game to make sure that it was... I guess, easy for you to come back to as, as life and other pieces uh, took up some of your time? Um, and then how did you work on it collaboratively with people in, in that way? I think it was something that naturally fit well into my schedule because I'm usually a sound designer and composer for other people's games. Um, so I'm always working in games five days a week and I usually just juggle different projects. So Boomerang Foo was nice because as my own solo developed project, there were no really hard deadlines that I had to push towards. Um, and that meant that I could say, okay, look, I've got a couple of days off. I think I'm going to create a new power-up. I'm going to create the multi-boomerang, and then I'll take the time to figure out how to make a boomerang split into five other boomerangs and then ricochet all around, and then try and balance the power-up a bit by making sure, okay, this could be really overpowered. Now I'm going to dial it back. So you actually have to collect all of those, all of the five boomerangs. You have to get them all back before you can then throw another boomerang. Um, yeah, it's just nice to break it up into little segments of this is the small task I'm going to accomplish this week and plug away at it like that. So was this process for you uh, an exercise in learning how to develop a game from start to finish uh, and getting a better idea of that process entirely? If you work in one aspect of games that you wanted to learn a bit more about the rest of it? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, I think because I've been working in the sound and music world of games for such a long time. I'd slowly been learning more and more about how the design side and the programming side worked because inevitably I'd end up putting the sounds into the game myself. I got more involved with the technical side of iterating on my own sound effects by coding them into other people's games. So it was really nice with Boomerang Foo to get a chance to finally say, okay, I'm going to make my own game from scratch and learn how every aspect of the game development process works. Is there something now that you have a a real appreciation for uh, that you didn't quite understand until you made your own game? Oh, definitely. I think the biggest one, which is really fresh in my mind, is publishing. I really didn't know what publishers did. I thought, they seem like people who just take, you know, 30 or 40% of your money, they give you some capital up front to help you invest, but they basically don't do anything. They're just lending you money and then taking a cut from then on. But I've just spent probably the last year 
half my time is dealing with publishing emails or the back ends of different websites for all the different platforms that we're on. There is so much work involved with um, quality assurance, localization, and even just people managing, like organizing the artists. And um, I got a couple of extra composers to help me out in the end because I didn't have time to finish all the music by myself. And just making sure everyone's delivering everything at the right time and it's all fitting together neatly while keeping an eye on the deadlines so that we can get it into cert before our release date. Yeah, it's a big challenge and I can see why you would want to outsource that and not necessarily be crazy like me and do it yourself. Um, What are some of the things you have learned from this process? It sounds like the publishing process might be something you'd be looking for outside assistance for for a future game. But what what have you learned um, that you would do differently uh, for for any other projects in the future? Well, actually, now that I've learned how to self-publish, it's now a lot easier because I know how a lot of those things work. (laughs) And I know who I would call if I wanted to get some translations done, for example. Um, But by far the biggest lesson for me, I think, is to get artists involved earlier. I thought I was being a genius by prototyping and playtesting the entire game as a grey box. And maybe that was smart. The grey box was definitely fun, and I could see how much joy people got from Boomerang Foo, even when it was just squares, like coloured squares moving around. It was still a really captivating game, I think. But once I got the artists involved, um, particularly Julian when he brought his own flavour to the game, that created so many opportunities for new game mechanics or new ways to present the game, where I think if I'd brought him in earlier, potentially those things could have happened a lot faster. Have you got um, a good example a, of how that, how that would work? Yeah, well, I think at one point he drew a lantern sticking up on a wall in one of his concept pieces where he was just drawing an environment and so he just drew this f- flaming lantern sitting on a castle wall and at that point I thought, oh, fire, we could actually, if I threw a boomerang and it hit that lantern and it fell off, that would presumably start a little fire on the ground. Maybe I should create a system where... If that lantern fell down, that could set bushes on fire and then the level could go on fire. And then I thought, oh, that's a great power-up. And really that's where the fire boomerang came from, was him drawing some flames, not even thinking about the gameplay. But I realised once that was in there that this could be a really cool new feature to add to the game. Wow, that sounds like, wow, that's what a, what a stroke of inspiration that, that came from that, um, just looking, looking at a picture of a, of a lantern to, to go from there. Um, can you tell me as well, you know, the process of developing uh, for a local multiplayer game, how do you balance it so that it is uh, challenging enough um, but also uh, fun enough uh, for people winning and that doesn't have one person completely steamroll every single other person when they first play this game? Well, we just have a gentle uh, auto-balance system, I call it, where if you're losing enough, we'll give you a shield. Um, And in Boomerang Fu, a single little bubble shield is really important because everyone can die in a single hit. So having a single extra hit point by way of that bubble shield makes you twice as hard to kill for whoever's winning the game. So if one person is just way better than the other three or four that they're playing against, suddenly they'll be faced where everyone has a shield. And we also give the winner a little crown that they wear on their head, which just is a nice little subtle reminder to everyone else, hang on, that jerk is beating all of us. We need to gang up on them. When you're sort of uh, talking about the the process of, of making it uh, viable as a um, local multiplayer game, I'm sure people, when you release the game, said, when is online multiplayer coming to this game? 
Can you tell me about the consideration yeah. around around including online multiplayer or not including it? Yeah, definitely. Um, I should say categorically, we have decided long ago not to include it, um, but it is by far our biggest feature request, um, which I completely understand, particularly when we're in the age of COVID-19, we've got a global pandemic. I do, now that we've released it, I do kind of wish that we'd built multiplayer online natively in there. But at the same time, I'm so glad with the decision we made early on because online multiplayer is naturally a very complex programming and logistical task to organize for a game. And for us, we're such a small team. Like I'm the only programmer and designer on it. And it's kind of me with artists and helpers as contractors coming in to assist me. Um, I really think I would have bitten off more than I could chew with online multiplayer. The game would likely have taken an extra couple of years. And I suspect that Paul Kapetko's implementation of native online multiplayer would be fair at best. It would be my first attempt at it and probably not my best attempt at it. Well, it would um, be your best because it'd be your first attempt at it. It's 100% best attempt. So <laughs> there you go. Yeah, exactly. And so for me, I really wanted to play to our strengths. And I knew that Boomerang Fu works very, very well as a local multiplayer party game. That was where I'd been playtesting. It's really where I think it had found its audience. Like it's a fairly niche genre now. There are not that many people, I mean, especially during the pandemic, who are getting together to play games in person. But it's something that I've personally really enjoyed as an experience. It's my favourite way to play other games. Um, So I just knew that because we could do that really well, I should devote all of my time and energy to making the best possible local experience that I could rather than diluting the game by trying to add online aspects and knowing that I'd have to make sacrifices with some of the gameplay and some of the design elements because we were moving online. Does, I mean, it's, it's tricky to make a local multiplayer game uh, make a return effectively. It, there is it's an occupied space. There are a lot of really popular games in the local multiplayer space, which take up a lot of, uh, of the real estate effectively. Um, was it the fact that you had another job that you were working in games and this is more of a side project for you? Did that have an, an impact on why you made a local multiplayer game for your first game? Definitely. I think the fact that I could take a risk financially in it was a huge incentive to do something crazy, like try and make a local multiplayer game. Um, and even having listened to previous episodes of Pixel Sift, I know Morgan Jaffet came on and said some really insightful things about the way local multiplayer games naturally will play test really well in party settings and people will have a great time and you'll think, oh, this is so fun, people are loving it. Uh, it could kind of give you a false positive about how many customers in the world will then want to buy that product. Um, but for me, first and foremost, I guess I wanted to make the kind of game that I wanted to play. And when I started out, which was back in 2015, there weren't that many local multiplayer games around. I had only played, I think, Towerfall and Lovers in a Dangerous Space Time and Nidhogg. I think those were probably the main staples that I was playing with my friends at the time. And so I really thought, oh, there's a gap in the market. There's this real niche that I can target. And then by chipping away at it for a little bit too long, that niche became pretty saturated. (laughs) And honestly, what's really shocked me is how well we've done. I thought, honestly, that upon releasing Boomerang Fu, it would be a bit of a train wreck because we've got a global pandemic. Parties are functionally illegal, perhaps unethical. And here I am with a party game saying, hey, invite your friends over, catch a disease. But I think we've actually found kind of a different niche to what I thought I was targeting originally. 
in that I've now received so many wonderful emails from people, often couples who are locked down together and playing it, um, and also parents with children where they're at home, they're stuck, they've got a switch and nothing else to do for hours on end, and they've really been enjoying getting together as a family to play Boomerang Foo. That's been great to see. And so I can't believe that it has been a success, but it actually has been. Wow. That, that must have been an amazing uh, – talk about timing uh, that happened to line up in exactly the perfect way. Um, what, what lessons would you like to impart uh, to people making games like you have done or, or, or something else uh, that you think everyone should know if they're going to embark on a project like this? Maybe it's a side project like you've had outside of their, their day job. Um, I think for me, even though this is a little bit specific to my situation of making a party game, but I think playtesting really is important. Boomerang Foo is only as good a game as it is today, I think, because of how many times I took it to these uh, beer and pixels meetups we had in Sydney before the lockdown, um, and also taking it around to friends' houses, just kind of getting it in the hands of my target audience and really seeing what they connected with in the game. There were many features that I added that no one really cared about, so I just cut those out. Or there were features that I thought weren't particularly good or important, and people loved them. And only through playtesting did I realise, oh, I should actually, you know, focus on that thing that people like. Um, it's very easy, I think, to become insular as a game developer and just work on uh, your own creative vision, which is important. But at the same time, I think it's really useful to just look over someone's shoulder while they're playing your game and think, okay, what are they struggling with? What's confusing them? What are they really connecting with? What are they interested in? What more can I add to this experience that would make this person playing the game love it? Does it also pay to not be uh, that precious about features and things that you've worked on? Yes, absolutely. I think I've heard the unfortunate expression that you have to kill your children as part of making games. Um, And there are definitely aspects of the game that I've worked on and spent many weeks developing and then realized this is actually fairly miserable. Now that I'm seeing people playing it, no one likes this, so I'm going to get rid of it. I'd love to also learn a little bit more about the sound design process because obviously that is something you work in uh, in your day job uh, every day. And, and what did you do uh, that you normally wouldn't get a chance to do in, in your day job? Uh, and what have you learned from your day job that was integral to designing the sound in this game? Um, in answer to the second question, um, kind of the fact that I've now developed these efficient processes in my day job of um, using middleware like Fmodel WYs and knowing what the workflow is of creating the sounds that I need and how to put program them into the game, because that's my bread and butter, I really smashed that out at the last minute for Boomerang Foo um, because everything else except the sound was a challenge for me and then the sound was just a bit of a cakewalk at the end. Um, but in terms of your first question and what I got to do differently for Boomerang Foo, uh, for me it was a real joy to finally recreate some sounds that I've always loved from the 1970s uh, Hong Kong kung fu movies that I used to watch on SBS as a teenager um, and combined with anime sounds as well. So I've got this kind of kung fu and anime blending aesthetic for the sound effects in Boomerang Fu. Um, and that was really fun to kind of go back to these retro sounds that I love and think, okay, that's what these sounds sounds like. How am I going to make my own version of this that will work for my cute little food characters slicing and dicing each other? 
That is phenomenal. Uh, and it's really definitely something you should put your headphones on or turn your speakers up for if you're going to listen to it. The soundtrack uh, is fantastic. The sound design is fantastic as well. Uh, I wonder if you're... Would if you, you were working with other projects, um, learning about the sort of their sound design thoughts about what they would like to put into a game. If someone is coming at a game fresh and you want them to think about how the sound should work in their game, what's a what's a golden rule or some piece of advice that you would give them for for what they should do when thinking about sound for their game at the early stages? I think having references is a really good way of communicating with sound designers and composers. Um, often the words that we use to describe sound and music um, are very specific or even ambiguous. And so communicating to a sound designer or a composer about what kind of material you want in your game can be hard just over email or even chatting in person. Whereas if you do have a few examples to show each other, I think that's a really good way to talk about what kind of style you want for your game. And related to that, I think, If you can think about what style you want and how you can make the sound not necessarily match the visuals, but uh, kind of marry into them or tie together to create a gestalt aesthetic experience that feels really satisfying, I think that's a good way to approach things, even if you want your sounds to be radically different from the images in order to create some uh, brilliant juxtaposition that no one's expecting. I think it's good to think about style and what is the style of the game you want to make. Very, very true. And now what is the future of Boomerang Foo? You said it was more successful than you expected it to be. Uh, is it at a stage where it is uh, feature complete, that's it, no more? You'll just be fixing bugs? Or, or do you plan to expand on it further? We're still uh, talking about that now because we only came out about two weeks ago. Um, and so the first thing on my menu is to uh, go and fix some bugs. <laughs> Got to do that first. But, yeah, we're definitely having conversations about content updates in the future. I'd really like to do some. We just need to figure out what's feasible and what makes financial sense for all of us, particularly when we're working on the side. What can we fit into our own busy schedules to try and add a few extra, you know, maybe some characters, power-ups or levels. It's all up in the air at the moment, but I'm really excited to add a little bit more to Boomerang Foo. Well, it sounds like people are very excited to be enjoying that. And I can only imagine as uh, things start to open up a bit more and people can spend more time together, uh, they'll look forward to spending some time playing some Boomerang Foo. Uh, Paul, thank you so much for sharing a bit of the process of the design of the game. It's been really insightful and I thank you for sharing your knowledge with us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. And uh, that's pretty much all the time we have tonight for episode 153 of Pixels. If you want to find out more about Boomerang Foo, you can find it on Switch, you can find it on on computer, uh, on the Steam store. Uh, just search for Boomerang Foo on Twitter, or you can give uh, Paul a follow as well at Paul Kopetko on Twitter as well. Uh, Pixel Sift is produced by Scott Quigg, Sarah Ireland, Fiona Bartholomew, Mitch Lowe, uh, myself, and Adam Christou. Uh, and we wouldn't have been able to make a 153 episode of Pixel Sift if we didn't have the support of Murdoch University. So go and check them out. Tell them that we sent you. If you're keen to learn more about a great creative degree, you can head to murdoch.edu.au forward slash arts for more information. That's murdoch.edu.au forward slash arts. As always, we will be sticking links to everything we talked about uh, in the show notes of our website. You'll be able to find uh, the link to get straight to Boomerang Foo so you can play it with your friends. That website is pixelsift.com. 
www.ncbc.org.au. And you can join us on Discord as well, uh, where we'd love to have you there, where a lot of our Discord members actually share the creative work that they're working on at the moment. It's one of the best things about uh, the community that's popped up around this podcast. Um, So you, if you're making stuff, we want to see what you're making. uh, Or if you want to see what people are making and get an idea of this creative uh, country that we live in and people all around the world, uh, then you can jump on there too. That's pixelsift.com.au forward slash Discord. If you want to join that up, pixelsift.com.au forward slash Discord. And if you like what we do, can we ask you a favor? Can you share the podcast with your friends? If someone you know might enjoy what we do, are interested in the process of making games and maybe want to learn some bits and pieces from some of the best uh, game design minds uh, in Australia and Southeast Asia, uh, let them know that we exist. It doesn't take much uh, to start someone listening to podcasts, um, but once you get them involved, they will love it. Uh, next week, we will be back with uh, Pixel Sift Plays. We will be checking out Coffee Talk one more time for the final chapter of that. That's all for this week. Thank you for joining us. Paul, thank you so much. Thank you. And we will see you all next time. Did you know that the original Final Fantasy creator, Hironobu Sakaguchi, made a spiritual successor to that legendary series called Fantasian for Apple Arcade, and every level in the game is a handmade, physical miniature model. Enjoy unlimited access to over 200 incredibly fun games with no ads and no in-app purchases. From puzzle and adventure games to sports, racing, and multiplayer action games, everyone can count on finding something to love. Head to sifter.com.au forward slash arcade to start your free trial of Apple Arcade today at sifter.com.au forward slash arcade for a one month free trial of Apple Arcade and you'll be supporting independent video games journalism. This offer is for new subscribers only $9.99 a month after free trial. Plan automatically renews after trial until cancelled.